All right, we're going to jump right into our passage this week. This was a hard one to write because, there, like I mentioned in the prayer, that we're only going to be able to scratch the surface, and there are like a thousand more things that we could talk about. Honestly, there's probably three hours of material on the cutting room floor for this one. Um, and so I wanted to get into it. It's, to me, this, the, our understanding of, of what we're going to talk about today, we're going to, we've been working through Genesis, and we've made it to Genesis 3, is one of the most important things for us to understand inside of our faith lives is how, how sin works, um, what, how, it, how it fits into how we interact with the world. Our understanding of what that is uh, shapes our view of God. It shapes our view of each other. It shapes their view of the world around us. It shapes our, the, our mission and our purpose. And so what, I hope we can do it justice this morning, uh, realizing there, that whenever we talk about something like sin, um, it's in its very nature deceptive and complicated. It's, it's, it's the... the, the one of the primary ways the Bible describes the devil as, is as the deceiver. And so we realize that none of it's straightforward on purpose. It's by its very nature uh, complicated. And so we've been working through Genesis in 2023. And, and just to quickly, very quickly remind us where we've been. Uh, we've moved through the first two chapters and made it to chapter three. And we opened the whole why are we doing Genesis thing with an understanding of where we start the story matters. When we're talking about our faith lives, it's important to realize that when Jesus talks about his life, he goes back to Genesis. Uh, Throughout Scripture, each person is pointing us back to the beginning of the story, and how we read the beginning of the story matters. So where we start our faith story matters. We talked about even where we start Genesis matters. It'll shape the way we live our lives if we start our story in Genesis 3, which we're going to talk about today, or in Genesis 1 and 2, which we've talked about for the last two weeks. We also talked about how we read the story matters, right? When we looked at Genesis 1, we actually gave you three things to think about as you're reading. If we can throw those up on the screen, Reese, that'd be great. Three different things to look for as we're reading through the different stories. We want to ask ourselves the question, what kind of story am I reading? And in Genesis 1, we saw that we were reading poetry, right? And so that matters. It helps us understand what's trying to be communicated in that space. But then when we read Genesis 2, we realized we're reading a different kind of literature, and that matters as well. So whenever we're reading a story in the Bible, we ask ourselves, what kind of story am I reading? Second, what's the elephant in the room? What are the weird things in the story? We've seen each week so far that especially in Genesis 1 and 2, there have been some strange details added in. Uh, And almost always when you see a strange detail in Scripture, it's communicating some kind of point. It's, It's meant to catch your attention so that you pay attention to something. And then third, what are the patterns? We realize that inside of Scripture are these built-in patterns. We talked about Genesis 1 being a chiasm, so like an X, right? The first three days create space, the second three days fill space. Uh, We saw patterns in Genesis 2 as well. So where we start the story matters, how we read the story matters. And last week, we we took a look at, at Genesis 2 and compared to Genesis 1, and we talked about how we understand God matters, talked about how there, some of us view God just through a Genesis 1 lens as being immensely powerful, the creator of all things, which is true, and contrasted in Genesis 2, where we see God create in Genesis 1, but he forms Adam like a potter in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we see the closeness of God, the intimacy of God uh, in, in that particular story. And we talked about how so also some people can be Genesis 2 people who only see God as their best friend and don't actually give him the bigness and authority he deserves. And so we talked about how in Genesis 1 and 2 it sets up this dual understanding of God, both being immensely powerful, big and grand, and close and caring. 
We ended last week by seeing that also in the Genesis 2 story, that it begins with, nothing, with, with the people being a dust, worthless, nothingness, dead, and new life coming in. And that Genesis 2 mode of God creating life out of what was dead and ends up playing itself throughout the rest of Scripture as well. We see that God is constantly in the business of breathing life back into dead things. Today we're going to keep moving through Genesis, um, and we could title this week in one of two ways. We could say how we understand sin matters, which, which, or we could just as easily say our choices matter, if we're going to stick with that theme. So let's just jump into the story and we can go from there. In order to actually get to Genesis 3 the right way, though, we, we have to go back to Genesis 2, which says this. Genesis 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Jumping to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and care for it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, it will certainly die. Jumping to verse 22. Then the Lord God made a, made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So we start our story today before the fall. It's important to understand what happens in the fall. By, the only way we can understand what happens in the fall is if we understand what happens before the fall. So what we have here is we have God forming Adam and Eve, and he places them in a garden that he's created for them. Now, there's a lot of things we could explore here, but we don't have enough time, so just the highlights. What we see in Genesis 2 here is that the garden is markedly different than the rest of the created world. Adam and Eve are placed there, and then they're given a command from God. God says, rule over it, subdue it or cultivate it, right, and then be fruitful and fill it. So we have three commands from God. In other words, he says, take this beautiful creation I've made, this beautiful garden I made, and actually even make it better, make it more beautiful, enhance it. There's also a suggestion that perhaps Adam and Eve's task was to do that kind of work to continue to spread the edges of the garden. It's a weird thing when we start to get into Genesis 2 in this space. We have the created world, which we know sin doesn't exist in yet, but then we have this special little section of the created world called the Garden of Eden, where, where God puts them in there and it's, it's different than the rest. What is that supposed to be? There's some that suggest the whole purpose of putting Adam and Eve in the garden was for them to rule over it, subdue it, and fill it, and then keep expanding the garden so that the entire world becomes that garden. That actually fits with how God ex- describes Israel in the, in the rest of the Old Testament. right? I'm going to bless you in this space, and then you're going to be a light to the hill to bless the entire world. It's also the way that God describes the church. right? You'd start in this small space and have that spread going across the world. We don't know for sure, but perhaps that was the reason. The second thing we want to notice in the Genesis 2 story is that God plants two trees in the middle of the garden. First, the tree of life. Right? Apparently, Adam and Eve's immortality was tied to this tree. Actually, the, in the, at the end of chapter 3, which we'll see today, when God sends them out of the garden, he actually does that because he says, so they can't reach out and take from the tree of life and live forever, which is interesting. We also see the tree of life come back in the Bible as well. Does anyone know where we see the tree of life the next time? 
Revelation. I don't know who said that, but you're right. Job back up. Uh, a tree of life comes back in Revelation. It's actually massive. It's so big, there's actually a river running through it uh, inside of the, the new city uh, on the new earth. So at the very end of the book of Revelation, we see the tree of life come back. Today, though, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the tree of life. We're going to focus on the other tree, right? The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right, what's this tree all about? Why did God put it in the garden at all? Uh, and then what actually happens when Eve eats it? That's what we're going to focus on today. The final thing, though, I want us to take from Genesis 2 is in this last line here. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, I think because so many of us are used to the story of Adam and Eve, this doesn't feel weird to us, right? It's just, yeah, Adam and Eve were naked. That's how it was. But that should feel like an elephant in the room for us. Why in the world were we told that? That's a weird detail to put in. Uh, what's the point of that particular thing being in there? And so we'll talk about that as well. Moving on to Genesis 3. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree, fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I'm going to pause there for a minute. Now first, I'm going to apologize right out of the gate because my guess is that some of you are going, no, there's an elephant, clearly. We have a talking snake. Uh, that's a weird thing. Let's just acknowledge that. Uh, and then we're not going to talk about it again today. Sorry, I'll have to get coffee if you want to. Um, we're not going to talk about the talking snake today. And that's disappointing, I'm sure. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. Moving on. Uh, seriously, if you want to grab coffee, I could probably talk about the snake for a really long time, but just not this morning. Sorry. What I do want to focus on, though is the tree, like we said, the tree itself. Then I want to talk about the interaction that we see between Eve and the serpent, and then finally talk about the fallout of that particular interaction. Okay, that's where we're going to go today. We're going to talk about the tree. Why is the tree of knowledge of good and evil there at all? What is it doing? What's its point? What's the interaction between Eve and the serpent, and what are the implications of that? And then finally, the fallout of that particular interaction. Which begins with a big question that I asked myself all the time when I was a kid. This was something that I was really angry with God for. Uh, because to me, the solution to have no sin in the world was super simple. Just don't put a tree there. Anyone else ever been with me on that one, right? right? If, if there just isn't a tree of knowledge of good and evil, we're all set. We have no problem because there's no temptation to eat it and we're fine. So what in the world is the deal with this tree? Why is it there in the first place? What, what's, it, what's its point? For me, growing up in particular, uh, it just would have made more sense to, to get rid of it. Now, the first thing that I was taught about why the tree was there growing up wasn't satisfying for me. I was told it was to give Adam and Eve a choice. Anyone else heard that one? I see a few nods, right? That God put that there to give Adam and Eve a choice so they would choose to follow him. There's a problem with that, though, and I actually most people wouldn't argue that anymore these days. And the major problem with that is the fact that before this particular story of the tree, Adam and Eve already have a choice, right? So we saw in Genesis 2 that God had given Adam and Eve a com three commands. Rule over the earth, subdue it and cultivate it, and be fruitful and multiply, right? Though Adam has a choice in all three of those things, doesn't he? If he decides to not do them, 
Well, that would technically be sin, wouldn't it? If he says, I don't feel like ruling over anything, I'm thinking I'm just going to sit here against this tree, happy doing that, Adam would have violated the commands that God gave. He already had a choice. So the tree has to be for something other than a choice. The argument that it's pretty compelling to me is that the fact is that when God, uh, when God gives Adam and Eve a command to do those three things, the command that he gives is perfectly in line with the way he created us to be. What I mean by that is that in human nature, we love to do the three things that God asked us to. We love to rule things, don't we? All of us do. We love to have control over certain segments of our life. It's, it's, in, it's innate in all of us. To rule over something is just in our nature. We love to cultivate things. We love to build things and make things and organize things and structure things. Uh, we, all of us like to do that in different areas, but every person that exists likes to, to, to make their space their own, don't they? To rule and to cultivate are part of the way that God makes us. It's inherent in who we are. And humanity has never had a problem being fruitful and multiplying, Right? That's just something that is natural to us. All three of those commands fit in with what God had already created us to be. But the command on the tree is different than those three, isn't it? We love to rule. We love to cultivate. We love to be fruitful and multiply. um, But we also love to eat. God made us to eat food. Actually, every other tree in the garden was given to us to eat. Uh, And God said, it's not only good, it's appropriate and a gift to you. The command to not eat from one tree, though, is actually contrary to our created state. One way that I've understood this is that essentially the command on the tree is one big cosmic because I said so, right? Why can't we eat from the tree? Well, because I told you not to, which is an interesting idea. Maybe we can, ex- we can maybe expand on that a little bit. What we have here is Adam and Eve are learning how to live in this new world. They're learning about their relationship with God. God asked them to do some things, and they're like, sure, they're happy to. They love to. It's natural for them. We saw that for the past few weeks, God created humanity with authority, with power to rule the earth. And if we rule well, uh, so we're created with this power to rule. But in order for us to rule well, God needs us to learn another thing as well. He believes it's, it's fundamental that we learn the appropriate relationship with our creator. God says, you are the rulers of the earth. I gave you that authority. But remember, I gave you that authority. It's a significant authority, but it also then opens us up for the temptation to desire more, which is what we'll see as the story continues. God says, I'm going to give you this authority, but you need to realize you are not the creator. You don't know as much as I do. You don't have my perspective, my wisdom, or my power, God says. And so I need you to know that when I tell you not to do something, I'm doing that because it's in your best interest. And you're going to have to trust me on that because you can't see it for yourself. It's important that we learn who, that God is bigger than us. And also that we trust that he has our best interests in mind. So then... The tree. Don't eat from the tree because there are things you don't understand, God says, that I do. I'm protecting you from pain and hurt and hardship. Yes, eating the tree is contrary to what you would normally do, 
But sometimes God says, I'm going to ask you to do things that are contrary to your impulses. That as humans, we sometimes have to rise above our created impulses and be wiser and smarter and more prudent than that. It's actually what differentiates us from the rest of the animals. So God helps, so, so that helps us gain a little bit understanding of what this tree is all about. And that'll matter as we start to look at the interaction then between Eve and the serpent. Again, we're not going to deal with the fact that a snake talks. That's weird. And that should, with some other day we can talk about that, but not now. But we, when we look at this interaction, it gives a deep insight into the nature of sin and, and the nature of how it interacts with the world today. So the serpent comes to Eve and he asks her a question. He says, Does God, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, the argument is that Eve has never heard a question like this before, that it's confusing to her. Not because she's, she's some just kind of ignorant person, but there's never been a chance to question God before. Uh, there's never been a reason to. Everything he's asked them to do fits with what they already want to do. He walks with them. He, he's made them. But this question forces a, a, something in her mind where she has to start asking herself, what, what did God say and why? And perhaps that's why her answer is a little bit confused. Right? God told them, don't eat from the tree. And Eve, when she responds, says, we can't even touch it, which is not something that God ever said. And then we get this line, which I don't want you to miss because it's loaded. The serpent says, you will certainly not die. The, serp the serpent says to the woman, you will certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the implications of those two verses are massive. What's the serpent doing? What's he offering to her? And what is he making her question? The first thing I want, to, want us to notice about this statement is that it isn't an outright lie, is it? There's actually an argument to be made that technically everything the serpent says there is true. Right? Does Eve immediately die? Does she learn something about the nature of good and evil? Yes. Were her eyes opened? Yes. Well, that's what he promised would happen. So we, we learn an awful lot about the nature of the enemy in this verse. Often, the devil tells a version of the truth. It's what makes it tempting. We see it in this passage here that he, he speaks true words because they resonate with Eve's soul. And it's a strategy that he uses throughout Scripture. Actually, the, probably the easiest place to see it is in the book of Matthew, which we did last year. At the beginning of the book of Matthew, Jesus goes out into the desert and he's tempted, right? First temptation, the devil says, is turn these, these stones to, to bread. What's the second one? Do you remember? Right? It's bow down to me and I'll give you all of this stuff, right? What is the devil's, how does the devil justify that? He uses scripture, doesn't he? And actually he does in the third temptation as well. He says, for the Bible says this, true word spoken by God to try to tempt and trick Jesus into that space. Often, the enemy will come with a lie. True words misapplied. It's what hooks us. The strategy hasn't changed much over the years either. In order to hook us, the devil needs large truths to, to offer us things that are actually good. None of us here, I hope, would be tempted if, some, if, if an enemy came and said, just kill everybody right now. I hope no one, if you're in that space, let's get some help for you, please. Right? But it's, that's not how it works. 
That in order to get to that space is a long burn, isn't it? There's a number of different things we have to believe before we can get to that space. Instead, what we're offered is something good that's twisted, that's, that points us away from where we're actually supposed to go. We're offered power or pleasure or fame or resource, all good things. See, one of the most important concepts I ever learned about the relationship between God and, and, the, and evil or the devil is, <clears throat> is this. The fact is that everything that exists was created by God. Now, maybe that seems simple to you, but it matters a lot in this kind of conversation. Every single thing that exists was created by God, meaning that every single thing that exists was at one point declared good. We saw that last week, two weeks ago. The contrary to that, then, is that the enemy or the devil has created nothing. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. See, evil is not a thing. This is, if you want to get into a little of a, a philosophical brain exercise here, evil actually doesn't exist as a thing. Evil is simply the absence of a thing. It's equivalent to the concept of cold. Does anybody understand that from science, right? Cold is also not actually a thing. Cold is the absence of heat, right? Well, evil is the absence of good, right? So, that, so good is a thing. Heat is a thing. Cold is the absence of that thing. Evil is the absence of that thing. Tracking? Kind of abstract theologically and philosophically, but <clears throat> so what that means that I know it's dense, but stick with me for one more second. If the devil then has created nothing, all he has all he has the power to do are take take things that were created by God to be good and twist them away from what they were intended to be. Follow me on that one? What the enemy does is he takes good things that are created by God that should point us back towards our creator into the relationship that we were created to have and he twists them away from that and points them towards something else, often towards ourselves. There are many examples we can use. Something like sex is a good and beautiful gift given to us. It connects husband and wife. It creates intimacy. It creates, it's pleasurable. It even, the Bible says, helps us understand the Trinity. And yet, as all of us know, that good thing in our society and our world has been twisted into being a lot, a variety of other things, right? The enemy took what was good, what was meant to drive us towards God and towards each other, and twists it into something else. The same is true with power. Power is good, right? We were given the command to rule and to cultivate. A good command given by God. You are, you are the rulers and authorities on this earth meant to drive us towards God and work and walk with him. But that can often get twisted to become selfish or manipulative or all of those different things. You get the point. The nature of sin is that, God, or that the enemy takes the good thing that God creates and twists it away from that. He speaks in big truths with lies attached to them that, that end up making it mis be misapplied or directed away from where it ought to go. See, what the enemy is doing here is he's presenting Eve with a large truth, a deception, with a deception or lie running along with it that twists it away from where it was intended to be. You won't die, he says. You're going to gain knowledge, which is a good thing, usually. So why was gaining knowledge bad in this case? What is the enemy actually doing? Why was this twisted away from where it ought to have been? There's two reasons. First, in order to wrap our minds around this, we need to understand what the author means by knowledge. In our Western culture, we talk about this a lot, knowledge for us is all here, usually. 
we know things if we can recall them. Right? We're, we're, we're factually based people. We tend to come to knowledge primarily from an intellectual space, and that is one way we can gain knowledge. That's a good understanding of knowledge. However, in this particular case, when it says that you were, you'll gain knowledge, it's the Hebrew word yada. Okay? So in this particular space is the Hebrew word yada, which is translated to know, but it's important that, that, we under, that we understand that their understanding of knowledge is very, very different than our Western understanding of knowledge. Yada, it technically in its meaning is to learn something or to know something through experience. That in order to know, gain knowledge, you experience a thing and now you know more about it. Actually, it's a Hebrew idiom for sex. In just the next chapter, Adam will yada Eve. He'll know her. And that's what that means, right? It's this, it's this I know her now through experience, right? Yada, this knowledge is in that space, and that's really important as we move, as we under, to try to understand what we're, what's going on here. You see, Eve already has an intellectual concept of evil, doesn't she? When the serpent questions her, she knows it's wrong for her to eat of that tree, doesn't she? She has an intellectual concept of evil already. If she didn't, and actually many rabbis argue this, if she didn't have any intellectual concept of evil, then she shouldn't even be held culpable for breaking it because she didn't know it was bad, right? Eve has an intellectual concept of evil. God doesn't... <clears throat> God, so the, the, what, they're not going to be gaining an intellectual understanding of evil. It's not that kind of knowledge gaining. What God doesn't want for them... God doesn't want Eve, he doesn't want Adam, he doesn't want humanity to experience the effect of evil on their persons, to to yadah it, to to gain knowledge through experience. Because God knows that if they do, it's going to corrupt them, as we see all around us in the world today. Which actually sets up the final part of the passage as well. See, what the serpent is suggesting to Eve is that God isn't entirely good. The serpent is suggesting that God is holding out on Eve, that there's some kind of good out there that God is keeping from her. And there are a lot of assumptions that ride underneath that, right? Maybe because he's afraid. He knows that if you eat, you'll be like him, and he doesn't want that. Or, he, or perhaps he's stingy. He just has to, he knows it's good for you, but he doesn't want to give it to you because he's holding it for himself. Or perhaps he's just not good. He doesn't care about you in that way. What the serpent proposes is that God knows when you eat it, you'll become like him. You'll know, knowing, you're dying, experiencing good and evil. He knows you'll be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. In other words, what, what the serpent is offering Eve is she's saying, and, but you could be the God of your own life. And that's the hook that gets Eve. God's holding out on you because he doesn't want you to be the God of your own life He doesn't want you to have the capacity to be what he can be. Which again, is true, but not for the reasons the serpent is implying. You see, the original human sin was the desire to be the gods of our own lives. And I would argue that it remains the most tempting proposition we face every single day. So much of the, the pain that we experience in our lives or so much of the sin or the things that, we're, that are pulling us away from the flourishing that we ought to be come because we desire to be the gods of our own lives. We think we can do it better. We think we know better. We think that we have a better solution than what God has proposed or any of those things. 
I'll take care of it. We may even give portions of our life to God and we'll say, I'm gonna, but I'll hold this portion because I think I can deal with that better than you can. Maybe we don't articulate it exactly that way, but it, practically speaking, we often function in that way. It's not an accident that the New Testament is constantly talking about dying to ourselves or taking off our old self and clothing ourselves with Jesus. Even the word disciple, someone decreases in their desire to rule their own life as they instead allow themselves to be transformed into looking more and more like Jesus every day. Allowing God to be God and for us not to be. The declaration of the early church was that Christ is Lord. And what, we, don't, we don't gain that concept as much because we don't live underneath an emperor or a monarchy. But the declaration of, of lordship was that that person rules your entire life, which was the earliest declaration from Christians, is that Jesus rules my entire life, allowing God to be God and not me. So with all of those concepts in mind, I want to close today by looking at the fallout of this interaction and then hopefully giving us some things to take home. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So Eve eventually eats along with Adam. Now, by the way, I, I don't think this is a big deal anymore, but I do want to point it out because I think it matters. This, that, there, there was a time in which people would argue uh, for the submission of women out of this passage, right? Eve ate first, so they clearly need to be then lower. Um, but that is such a garbage interpretation, and I'll just call it for what it is. That is not what this passage is saying at all. Actually, as you can see here, um, Adam's right there, right? She, she eats and turns and is like, hey, Adam, we want some? Like, he could have spoken up at any point, but he doesn't. They're both equally culpable in this. So I don't think that's as big of a deal anymore, but in case it was for you, it shouldn't be. But anyway, Eve eats, and what happens? It says their eyes are open. They can see things they hadn't seen before. And then all of a sudden, they yada that they're naked. They know that they're naked. But they know it through experience, right? Which is different. Because they knew they were naked before, right? I, I you don't believe that once they ate the fruit, Adam looked at Eve and was like, hey, I didn't notice you didn't have clothes on before, right? I'm not sure that's how that works. It's in that moment, though, that they actually experience nakedness emotionally and physically. In other words, they experience shame. They experience evil. They're now, they now feel like they're, they're seen, but they don't feel good being seen. They feel vulnerable and scared. They, they immediately know or they immediately, they, they know evil now, and they immediately realize that it would have been better had they not. Because the relationships they had known were corrupted. 
The relationship with God is corrupted, right? Right away we see that God comes to walk with them and they run and hide. They used, to, they used to be in relationship with him and now his very voice makes them afraid. The relationship with each other is corrupted. Right? Immediately after God finds them, they start the blame game. Actually, there's a, a stark contrast between, if you can throw up the next slide, um, Reese. Stark contrast between Adam's words in Genesis 2, right? So God makes Eve, and, and the man said, Adam says, now this, now, I honestly think you could read this, like, so leading up into this part of the story, God's brought all the animals to Adam and said, hey, are any of these going to be good partners for you? And he's like, no, I'm not really into sheep, right? Or something. And then, sorry, weird. I, I don't know why I went down that line. And then, then God makes, then God, so he's, so Adam's seen all of these animals, and then God makes Eve, and when she comes out, he's like, now this is bone of my bone, right? You guys get it, right? He's like, okay, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. He's like, high five, God, we got it. Well done, right? And it is supposed to kind of, kind of be read that way. It's a little bit of a joke, but also it, the, the assumption there is that Adam's like, yes, I'm in. You contrast that to Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman you put here with me. First of all, that's going to be an awkward conversation later tonight, isn't it? Right? Like, Eve's going, oh, really? You were standing right there, you jerk. Come on. But, but, but you, see, you see what Adam's doing here? The relationship is broken. One is he's, he's blaming God for her even existing. When, when just a few chap- verses earlier, he was like, all right. And he's throwing Eve under the bus. It's not, it's not a good, good relationship anymore. And then Eve goes on and blames the serpent. We also see their relationship with the earth is corrupted. The garden that was planted to care for their needs is now barred from them. And instead of the earth caring for them, they're going to need to work it to make it to produce enough to survive. See, it doesn't take long for, hum- for humans to realize that they cannot be like God. That we fail to fight our own impulses and desires. That we're selfish and defensive and we, and, and we experience evil and it starts to corrupt who we are. See, the serpent didn't lie about the fact that we would now experience evil like God. He failed to mention, however, that we don't possess the ability to deal with those experiences like God does. And so the story ends with humanity being expelled from the garden and barred for now until revelation, like we said, from the tree of life. So we've just tackled an immense amount of information. I understand that. I really do. And honestly, we only scratched the surface. There's so much more we could pull out of that. It might feel overwhelming, which is an uncomfortable feeling. I understand that too. But I want to encourage you to continue to wrestle with the things that we've talked about. Because the more you start, the more you can understand those, the more you can internalize those different things, the, the, the more you're going to see it pop out in different places in Scripture. We will also come back to these points throughout the book of Genesis, because Genesis does that. But I want to close today by seeing if we can grab some practical takeaways from all the things we've talked about. We focused on three things in this story, so let's see if we can get three takeaways as well. First, we ask ourselves the question, do we trust that God has our best interests in mind? We talked about how that, the nature of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in itself is us trusting that God says, don't eat from that because I know better than you do. See, over the past few weeks, we've seen that our view of God matters. In this story, the implications of those views are on crystal clear display. Eve has to wrestle with two ideas about God. Either he's holding out on her, keeping something good from her, 
leading her for, he, God's leading her either from a, a selfish or some other kind of perspective. Is God holding out on you? Or he's actually bigger and wiser than her and is looking out for her own best interest. That's the question that Eve's faced with. And we're faced with that same dilemma all the time, aren't we? God says it's better to forgive than to not. Do you believe that's true? What if it's hard? God asks us to do some hard things. Do you believe that the outcome is worth the cost? Or in other words, do you actually believe God wants what's best for you? Where he says, I need you to walk this hard road because it will be better for you. I know in my life, I wrestle with that all the time. I know a lot of times that what the right thing is, and yet I don't always trust that it's actually the best way. Yeah, but we could easily do it if we just did this thing instead. Right? Do we believe that God actually has our best interests in mind. See, we, we said it last week, many of us can fall into the trap of viewing God as an angry, judgmental boss figure, right? That he gives us rules that are arbitrary just so that he has some kind of control over us. And when we fail, he saps us. A lot of us have a view of God being like Zeus instead of Yahweh. More concerned with executing justice than he is about your flourishing. In this story, Eve had to wrestle with that. It's something we have to wrestle with as well. Do we have areas in our lives where we're viewing God as holding out on us or as an angry, judgmental God? If so, perhaps we should wrestle with them again. It's the strategy of the serpent to start cultivating doubts about who God is and why he asks us to do certain things because what that creates in us is a kind of chaos. It prevents us from doing the hard things that would lead us to flourishing. And in this case, we see often, the, almost always, the outcome's not good. First thing I want us to take away from the story is that question, do we believe that God is actually for us, that he actually has our best interest in mind? If we don't, we should start wrestling with those things in our lives. Second, the original temptation for Eve was the offer of being the God of her own life. Her belief that God might be holding out on her and that she could possibly do it better herself was the driving force behind the fall. And like we've already said, it's something that we all wrestle with every single day. We, like Eve, wrestle with the desire to be the gods of our own lives. We want to control situations or people. We want to do things our way rather than God's. We think we know better so often. I could just do it this way to be easier or simpler or less painful or less awkward, whatever that might be. If you just take a quick look at the human experience, so many of our problems stem from our internal God complexes. I am the most important thing in this situation, we often say. My needs matter more than others, or I should have more than others, or I should be able to control this thing, or I could take care of it better of myself. So the question we leave ourselves with today then is, are there areas in your life where you have not even playing God's role? Are there areas you've kept from him because you believe you know better or can do it better? If there are, just question, or just challenge you to, to ask yourself how they're working. I know I have some, and I was, I, I, you know, whenever you write a message and convict yourself, it doesn't feel good, but it's also important, right? 
And if I look at those, the areas in which I've tried to gain control, and it goes in waves for me, they're the areas that are the most frustrating, the most stressful, and the least effective, typically. Do you have those as well? Do you have areas in which, you, which God has said, hey, here's the path forward, and you go, yeah, 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 but I know better. I'll keep it for myself. I challenge you to wrestle with those this morning. Is God holding out on us? Are we trying to be the God of our own lives? And finally, it's the realization the devil has created nothing, that everything that was created was created by God so that everything that, that exists was once declared good. We said it already, sin is taking what is good and it twists it away from the good purpose it was created to achieve, which creates pain and destruction. It actually starts to undo the creation story of Genesis 1. What I mean by that, in the beginning it says there was chaos. And God takes the chaos and he gives it order. We saw that in Genesis 1, right? What the enemy then does is take the good order that God creates it and twists it away from order back to chaos unmaking the created order. Sin takes good order and turns it back towards chaos. That's true of the things that we build or experience, things like power, sex, resources, influence, were all meant to be good, but can so easily be twisted away from the good they were intended towards chaos and causing pain, destruction, and harm. It's true of the structures we build, it's true of our interactions with each other, but it's also true of us personally. Sin, takes our lives, sin in our lives takes our purposes, the things we were created to do, to rule, subdue, to cultivate, and turns them away from their intended purposes, causing pain, destruction, and chaos again for ourselves and for the people we interact with. It takes the good, the good things that were meant to make us flourish and turns them into either selfish or self-destructing kinds of things. You see, how we deal with the first two practical points dramatically affects the last one. If we believe God is for us and we accept that he can do a better job of being God than we can, then we accept that the reason he tells us to avoid sin is because it hurts us just in the ways that we described. God then is not an angry judge who wants to punish you, but instead a father who's trying to guide you through the process of taking the areas in our lives, uh, the things that have been twisted, and restoring them to the way they ought to have been. Genesis 3 is critical to how we read the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are critical to how we read the rest of the Bible because it shapes our view of God, it shapes our view of ourselves in relationship to God, and then our relationship to sin in which the good things that God has done have been twisted away from what they were intended to be. If we understand that where we start the story matters, that the story begins with us being created with value and significance and meaning because God made us that way, and then we understand that God is both powerful to do that and deeply cares for us intimately, then we can begin to trust that God actually has our best interests in mind, that, way that he created us to flourish and desires for us to flourish again. If we believe those three things, then we, it changes our interaction with sin entirely and we stop doing this, this ridiculous game that the church has done about making sin about value. That if you do these things and you're somehow less than, that is such garbage it's not what the Bible says. I got really mad there for a second because it makes me mad. Sorry. That is a view of God as being the angry, judgmental Zeus. Now, it is very clear from what we read today that sin matters. 
that it is something that takes the good things that were intended to be and twists them away from that into pain, destruction, and chaos. We see it all over the world. God has then tasked us as the church to do our best with everybody we're interacting with, to trust that God has our best interests, and so if we follow him, we can take those twisted, broken, hurting things and make them right in our lives and in the lives of the people we interact with. The call of the church is to take sin seriously, not because we're afraid that we might get zapped by a lightning bolt, but because we know that God wants us to flourish and we trust that he will lead us into that flourishing. The task of the church is to, is to bring a, a restoration of Eden, the created order that was meant to be, back into this world again. If we understand our mission to be that, all of a sudden we understand why they call the gospel the gospel. The gospel means good news. That's good news to the world. Be afraid of an angry, vengeful lightning bolt is not. That's a message that the rest of actually all other world religions declare. That's a message that's been taught from the time of Zeus or Ra or Marduk. But Jesus says, no, 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 I have something different here. I actually want to partner with you to untwist the things that have been twisted, to set the world right back to the way it meant to be so we can flourish in this space now until we get to the tree of life again in eternity. Where we start the story matters. How we view God in that story matters. And then how that interacts with sin matters. When we understand these parts in order, this, will be, this is actually the end of, of this series, that we're mini-series in Genesis. We're going to start to see how those things function throughout the rest of human history in Genesis. We're going to see time and time again, when we get those three things wrong, all that happens is pain, suffering, and chaos. So my hope is that as we leave today, we can wrestle with those things as well. Where are we not trusting that God has our best interests in mind? Where are we not trusting that where were we trying to be the gods of our own lives? And where have we allowed the good things that God desires for us to be twisted? And how do we walk with him to set those things right?